Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Brooke Gladstone is out this week. I'm Bob Garfield. The latest chapter of the ongoing saga of the Mueller investigation and executive branch mischief ratcheted up yet again this week. Pretty dramatically, actually. This is Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii giving a shout-out to journalists for once again revealing administration misdirection. And now we know, thanks to a free press, that Mr. Mueller wrote your letter objecting to your so-called summary. Hirono was grilling Attorney General Bill Barr at a hearing Wednesday of the Senate Judiciary Committee where Democrats wanted to know why his now infamous four-page summary mischaracterized Mueller's investigatory conclusions and why Barr then mischaracterized the special counsel's written objections to the summary. When you called Mueller to discuss his letter, the reports are that he thought your summary was giving the press, Congress, and the public a misleading impression of his work. Once again, the press found itself to be a major character in the Mueller investigation narrative, most especially when fingered by Barr at his initial press conference on the report as a sort of unindicted co-conspirator in an unholy witch hunt. There was relentless speculation in the news media about the president's personal culpability. Yet, as he said from the beginning, there was, in fact, no collusion. So persistent and unfair was the coverage, Barr testified on Wednesday. Of course Trump would want to stop the witch hunt, and of course he can't have been found to have obstructed justice. And he felt that uh, this investigation was unfair, propelled by his political opponents, and was, and was hampering his ability to govern. That is not a corrupt motive for replacing an independent counsel. I I think it's fair to say that every president hates the press and every president feels hassled by the press. Dahlia Lithwick covers the courts for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. But the idea that, you know, and there are a couple of versions of this that Barr puts forward, the idea that the press made me do it is kind of anathema to the idea of a free press as, you know, we actually have sealed in amber in the First Amendment itself. There's a second dimension of this that also was addressed by Mueller in his report. And it concerns what the president did when a New York Times story revealed that he had tried to get White House counsel Don McGahn to intervene. Breaking news tonight from the New York Times, President Trump ordered for special counsel Robert Mueller to be fired. Tried to fire special counsel Robert Mueller last June. But Mr. Trump backed down when White House lawyer Don McGahn threatened to resign. Don McGahn threatened to quit rather than carry out the president's order. When that story emerged, Trump ordered Don McGahn to deny that that had happened. So I think that's the lay of the land. So this becomes relevant in two ways. First of all, It would seem to impeach Barr's claim that the president was reacting to false news stories, to a fake news narrative. 
Uh, and he was just frustrated by it because the president knew, in fact, that the New York Times story was right all along, no? Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. The two pieces are, one, the implication that the Times had made a mistake and set this thing in motion, and, and that's not right. And then I think the other thing is that Mueller explicitly found that – if this was just being done to correct the press, the, the time had already lapsed. That didn't make sense. And so Mueller writes, if the president were focused solely on a press strategy, that would have been one thing. But the president's efforts to do this, quote, for the records 10 days after the story had come out, this is long past time to issue a correction, suggests the president was not focused on a press strategy, but likely contemplated the investigation and proceedings arising from it. So that's Mueller saying, I am dismissing the idea that this was just the president pushing back at the press. He was trying to get himself involved in the investigation. But Barr dismissed Mueller in coming to his conclusions. And then it is alleged perjured himself before Congress in denying that he even knew that Mueller was peeved. Yeah, this is a whole other problem now is whether he committed acts of perjury because he had been asked in two different proceedings. Did Mueller have a problem with your summaries? Did he have a problem with your spin? Did Bob Mueller support your conclusion? I don't know whether Bob Mueller supported my conclusion. Reports have emerged recently, uh, General, that members of the special counsel's team are frustrated at some level with the limited information included in your March 24th letter that it does not adequately or accurately necessarily portray the report's findings. Do you know what they're referencing with that? No, I don't. He was holding in his hands uh, a March 27th letter from Bob Mueller saying, you're spinning this wrong. This is not correct. And people are not understanding the nuance of what I wrote. Please release my summaries. He knew that at the time that he was testifying. Nancy Pelosi is now saying that that rises to the level of perjury and wants to see it investigated. It seems as though Democrats are trying to find a legal hook to solve the problem of Donald Trump saying nobody responds to subpoenas, nobody goes to hearings, we're done with oversight. And so I think what you're hearing a little bit is casting about for some kind of legal rationale to hold folks to account if they absolutely reject the idea that there can be oversight. All right, back to the press because this is on the media and right, there right. is no other thing in the world. Yes. These were not the only instances in which the attorney general blamed the press for his conduct. There was also the question of the timing and the nature of his various releases. The body politic was in a high state of agitation. There was massive interest in learning what the bottom line results of uh, Bob Mueller's investigation was, particularly as to collusion. Former government officials were confidently predicting that the president and members of his family were going to be indicted. There were people. He's talking about how dangerous it is. He's talking about this massive public hysteria. The public needed to know, and I couldn't parse out bit by bit my findings. It was their inability to wait that forced me to cough up a hairball that turned out to not be accurate as a summary. There was yet one more thing, a fourth item where it was the press's fault. Uh, he said Mueller's objections really weren't to 
Barr's characterization of the Mueller report. And I asked him if he was suggesting that the March 24th letter was inaccurate. And he said no, but that the press reporting had been inaccurate and that the press was reading too much into it. Uh, There's certainly nothing in the March 27th letter where Mueller says, you did a bang-up job summarizing my 440-page report, but the the press screwed it up. Uh, He's fairly clear and detailed about the ways in which the failure was, uh, Barr's failure in the summaries, and again, saying, please put out the summaries we created expressly for this purpose. So I think that was very much a, a Bill Barr gloss on the Mueller letter. In Barr's confirmation hearings, he was asked, do you believe Mr. Mueller would be involved in a witch hunt against anybody? I don't believe Mr. Mueller would would uh, be involved in a witch hunt. He was asked a similar question on April 10th, and his answer then was quite different. It really depends on where you're sitting. <laughs> you know, I'll hardly even know where to start. Well, at bottom, I think it's a tribalist construction of the world where institutions are broken and processes are not legitimate and the press are all liars. Even within his own department, he was willing to call out bad behavior. He was willing to say that there were people on the Mueller team who were not in good faith. He was willing to say that there was were ways in which Mueller himself was not in good faith. And I think to do that in order to call into question the legitimacy of what is supposed to be an independent legal investigation is very, very frightening. And, you know, this casual language of false accusations, that's not something you throw around lightly unless you want people to lose confidence in fact-finding, truth-seeking institutions that are the backbone of how this country has governed itself. One final thing, Dahlia. The Justice Department and the White House have declined to fulfill the demands from Congress for certain information. And Barr has refused to appear before a House committee controlled by Democrats on the grounds that he doesn't like the format. We often talk about, you know, we're headed towards a constitutional crisis. Isn't that the very definition of a constitutional crisis, one branch of government utterly dissing another? Yeah, that's textbook. And I think you can pull out a pretext for why you will not submit to the authority of the committee. But I think repeated acts of this nature, repeated refusals to submit to any oversight. And again, the politicization, the the claim that this isn't real oversight because they're the enemy. That really is fomenting what could be a really catastrophic constitutional meltdown unless everybody backs down. Dahlia, thank you. Thank you for having me. Dahlia Lithwick covers the courts for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. Coming up, as Jews are targeted in murderous hate crimes, dubious charges of anti-Semitism elsewhere seek to change the subject. This is On the Media. So here's something I bet every On the Media listener can agree on. 
The narrative matters. The stories we tell ourselves about our past absolutely shape how we think about our future. And that's the focus of our new season of the United States of Anxiety, a podcast from WNYC Studios. I'm Kai Wright. Join me as I investigate the unfinished business of American history and learn how it shapes everything about the 2020 election. Get the United States of Anxiety on Apple Podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. Another week, another horrific act of domestic terrorism, this time in Poway, California. Another gunman opened fire in a house of worship just months after the deadly shooting at a Pittsburgh synagogue. Police have apprehended a white 19-year-old gunman who they say stormed into an all-day Passover service in the city of Poway, killing one and injuring three more. Citing the Christchurch massacre in March and the Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh, the alleged killer articulated his hate for Jews and Muslims in a familiar screed featuring far-right memes and white supremacist iconography. Since Trump's election and the resurgence of white supremacy, there's been a raised awareness of the threat of anti-Semitism. One of the complexities of anti-Semitism is that it takes a bunch of different forms. And so sometimes it can be essentially economic, it can be xenophobic, it can also be religious. And then, of course, later on, you get racialization. And so then you get the ideas that Jews are a mongrel, lesser race. You see that in Nazi ideology. That's Leo Ferguson, an organizer with Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, who I spoke to immediately after the October massacre at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life synagogue. This week, after the Poway shooting, we spoke again, because some of the outrage over the latest hate crime was obscured by other accusations of anti-Semitism, which to Ferguson looked like a cynical tactic to change the subject away from the rise of neo-fascism. He calls these accusations, I guess in the zeitgeistiest of terms, fake anti-Semitism. There is an entire cottage industry from the Zionist Organization of America to Canary Mission, these organizations that exist to essentially conflate, confuse, and confound definitions of anti-Semitism. They particularly target pro-Palestinian organizing on campus, but they also look for any breadcrumb they can use to delegitimize that work. So, for example, if I were to say, well, you know, I believe that Israel is not just a security state, but an apartheid state where Arabs are second-class citizens or guest workers, I will be sure to be accused of anti-Semitism by one of these groups? Absolutely. Another example are folks targeting the BDS movement, where you have organizers working to uh, advocate for the boycott, divestment, and sanction of Israel— to pressure Israel to address its human rights uh, abuses and treatment of Palestinians. Whether you agree or disagree with their tactics, this is clearly a legitimate form of political protest, widely used the anti-apartheid movement, lots of other movements throughout history, and yet there is a, a ton of energy going towards trying to smear these folks as being across the board anti-Semitic and to conflate the use of this boycott, divestment, and sanctions tactic with anti-Semitism. So I just want to be clear. Sometimes there is, even from the right, a legitimate grievance. I'm not much of a Zionist, but I am Jewish. And sometimes criticism of Israel 
does sound awfully anti-Semitic, especially when the subject is U.S. pro-Israel policy and it's being framed as being beholden to the Jews. So the accusation isn't always empty, is it? Absolutely not. There's anti-Semitic rhetoric, frankly, that finds its way into all kinds of political discourse. We shouldn't be surprised by this because anti-Semitism is an ideology that is pervasive in our society. So it's going to show up everywhere. And as the temperature gets turned up, it's unfortunate, but it shouldn't be surprising that it seeps into conversations about Israel and into conversations about bankers, into conversations about all kinds of areas. It's our job to get really, really clear about what anti-Semitism is and how it operates to really up our game in terms of our anti-Semitism analysis so that we can call that stuff out when we see it. That's really important. But it's also important to not conflate terms and ideas because ultimately that actually makes all Jews less safe. Complicating the problem is this third category that you've identified, which is weaponization, taking charges of anti-Semitism, both righteous and fake, and... And using them for largely partisan political gain. When you take charges of anti-Semitism, be they real or false, and use them not out of a deep concern for the well-being of Jews, but in fact out of a, a desire to advance a policy agenda or to bludgeon the opposing political party, that's the weaponization of anti-Semitism. I think the best example is right-wing Republican leaders in Congress attacking progressive Democrats about anti-Semitism, completely ignoring the egregious anti-Semitism in their own party. They won't criticize Trump for saying that there are very fine people on both sides in Charlottesville, something that he just doubled down on a few days ago. And if you look at what I said, you will see that that question was answered perfectly. They won't criticize their own members like Steve King for doing, you know, truly heinous, racist, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic things. They won't criticize members who stand up next to white nationalists at rallies and events. They refuse to criticize members of Congress like Chuck Grassley, who are more than happy to trumpet the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories surrounding George Soros. Do you believe George Soros is behind all of this, paying these people to get you and your colleagues in elevators or wherever they can get in your face? I tend to believe it. I believe it fits in his... Uh, but they somehow become outraged. They're shocked, shocked to find anti-Semitism in the progressive left. Which, once again, is cynical. But some of it's just ambiguous, right? I'm thinking of the scandal a few months back when Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota... She had tweeted, quote, it's all about the Benjamins, baby, and it was her response to the message critical of the Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy for going after Congresswoman Omar and her support of the anti-Israel movement called BDS or boycott. Obviously that evoked old anti-Semitic tropes about Jews and money. Now, the Israel lobby does wield a lot of influence in Congress, maybe not on NRA level, but they are not a trivial force in our politics. But nonetheless, Omar took a drubbing especially from Republicans pointing across the aisle saying, hey, you guys talk about hate speech, but look who you're harboring in your tent. At a minimum, it was not good optics for a Democratic Party that has been thumping Trump as an apologist for hate. It's a win-win for 
the folks on the right who are looking to make those gains. The way that I know that their strategy is successful is that today, just a few days after a white nationalist gunman walked into a synagogue in San Diego and murdered someone and and wounded others, we're still having a conversation about Ilhan Omar. The whole Ilhan affair became a political football. A resolution in the House was floated against anti-Semitism, and that created a hubbub, so then it, it mutates. The final version condemns anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim bias equally. And almost everybody voted for it. There are only 23 nays cast. What, if anything, did this episode teach us? As messy as the process was, I actually look at the outcome in some ways as a win. Because... It's actually really important that we get clear that this kind of white nationalist ideology is actually targeting all of us. Like, it is actually meaningful to say that we want to fight against Islamophobia, that we want to fight against anti-black racism, that we want to fight against xenophobia at the same time as we're saying we want to fight against anti-Semitism. While we're watching anti-Semitic violence and incidents of hate speech and, and swastikas being drawn on playgrounds, while we're watching those things rise in New York City, we know that our Arab and Muslim neighbors, our immigrant neighbors, our, you know, LGBTQ neighbors are also coming under threat from the same ideology. And so it's very much incumbent on all of us to band together and think of this as something in which we have real mutual shared interest. All right. We last spoke, what was it, six months ago and uh, after the Tree of Life shootings. And although the crimes are piling up, although the public expressions of anti-Semitism are piling up. Something else is going on that you believe represents positive change. As a Jew and as someone who has spent some time studying anti-Semitism, one thing that I know is that Jews are less safe when people believe that they have no control over their economic destiny, that they are being crushed by wealthy, powerful people. Unfortunately, the analysis that the white nationalists and the folks on the right have is a sort of cheap one that says, blame the Jews, blame George Soros, blame the globalists. I have a very different understanding of what it is that is hurting working people. My people were brutally murdered because too many of their fellow countrymen believed that they were responsible for poverty and and real economic hardship and pain. So it means a lot that, you know, since we last spoke, we saw Amazon get shoved out of New York by a coalition that included Jews and Muslims and Sikhs and all different kinds of folks saying, this is not our vision for the city that we want. This is not where we believe we are going to find prosperity. That's very powerful. Like Us building power together across lines of difference towards a much brighter future That's what is going to keep us safe. That is the true antidote. Well, it's an interesting thought that if nationalism and white separatism and general right-wing extremism grows out of a sense of economic and cultural insecurity, that if these very same communities can be empowered to see the results of their own actions, that will take the pressure off the Jews as the scapegoats for everything. But does that really deal with the underlying millennia-old forces of just plain animus. 
That makes me think of ta Coates, who points out that, you know, we don't have a roadmap for this. There is no manual for how to undo centuries and centuries of these ideas infecting our society and shaping the fortunes and, and histories of nations and people. So all we can do is look towards what looks good, <laughs> what looks right. It looks better to me to have a future in which there is broad shared prosperity, in which all people, including Jews, feel safe. My sense is that's probably a step in the right direction. It doesn't mean that we don't also have to call out anti-Semitism, that we don't have to name it and identify it and pick it apart and understand it. I don't think we have to choose. In fact, frankly, I think we can't do one without the other. Leo, thank you so much. Oh, an absolute honor and a pleasure to be here. Leo Ferguson is an organizer with Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. Ferguson embodies all of the civility and equanimity you'd expect from a social justice organizer. But when it comes to dubious charges of anti-Semitism, not everyone is so gentle. Consider the tempest in a skullcap that erupted this week when the New York Times was compelled to apologize for a political cartoon that had been reprinted in its international edition. The New York Times is promising significant changes after publishing an anti-Semitic cartoon in its international edition. The paper says it's deeply sorry about a cartoon depicting Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, star of David, as a dog on a leash held by a blind President Trump. The satirical point, or what passed for it, was that Trump's policy on the Middle East is blindly following Bibi's lead. It relied on some worrisome tropes for sure, but a modern-day Der Stürmer cartoon, it was not. First of all, the dog was wearing a Jewish star, and the problem is that Israel has adopted and appropriated all the iconography of Jewish tradition. That's Ellie Valley, himself a satirist and comic artist, who knows anti-Semitism when he sees it and gets a little irritable when such charges are launched out of political expediency while the real horrible thing is playing out in synagogues and morgues. The uproar was within moments of a body being freshly murdered. I mean, a human being, the body was still warm. And so this is unconscionable that the right is doing this. And they keep doing it. You know, we have a man who is allied with neo-Nazi movements in the White House. And we are told that it's because of a Portuguese cartoon published in Italy and in Spain that we had a massacre. That's, that's horrifying, you know. Uh, before I get to another example of changing the subject, I think it behooves me to talk about your work and uh, particularly your drawing style, which I would say, and I, I hope you're with me on the references here, I would say splits the difference between Robert Crumb and another big 60s illustrator, not so famous, Ed Big Daddy Roth. Oh, Ed Roth, okay. Kind of gothic, kind of yeah. grotesque, kind of hairy. Not just warts and all, but warts above all. Yeah. Is that a fair description of your style? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, the literal antecedent is Mad Comics of the 50s. And R. Crumb, of course, was hugely influenced by them. It's like when Mad became a magazine, the underground emerged afterwards in the 60s. Harvey Kurtzman and Will Elder are like the or texts of, of this kind of uh, art. But also like Basil Walverton. Are you familiar with him? He did these like extreme grotesqueries, warts specifically, and so many others, uh, you know, Jack Hammond, um, Feldstein. There's like, it basically was like this Yiddish theater cacophony in the pages of comic books in, in the early 50s. Hmm. And the other thing about you is that you're really, really an angry dude. 
I'm increasingly angry because, well, I mean, just look outside. Uh, you know, there, there are reasons to be angry. You know, if you're not angry, you're not, you're not awake right now. So as this anti-Semitism flame war has unfolded since the, the Pittsburgh shooting last year, you've been drawing cartoons, caricaturing various political commentators, maybe chief among them Meghan McCain of The View. And can you describe your first depiction of Meghan McCain? Because it's equally horrifying and hilarious. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it's just Meghan McCain. It's a satire of her appropriation of Jewish kitsch and Jewish trauma when she said on The View and then repeated elsewhere. On both sides, it should be called out. Right. Mm-hmm. And just because I don't technically have Jewish family that are blood-related to me, it doesn't mean I don't take this as seriously, and it is very dangerous. You know, that, that her authority to speak on Jewish issues comes from her friendship with Joe and Hadassah Lieberman. Some of my best friends are Jews. Exactly, exactly. And that um, the big threat is coming from Ilhan Omar when we're living in this neo-Nazi apocalypse right now. What Ilhan Omar is saying is very scary to me, and it's very scary to a lot of people, and I don't think you have to be Jewish to recognize that. So I drew her uh, pouring <laughs> matzo ball soup mix without any water <laughs> added, just pouring it overflowing into a bowl, and all this, like, ephemera of Jewish kitsch, including Yentl DVD, A Christian's Guide to Seder, The Jewish Race Explained, and a Matis Yahoo CD, which was a deep cut for my, uh, you know, people who were involved in the Jewish world like 10 years ago, yeah, and had her uh, putting on, literally, like, stapling to her chest almost, a uh, Yuda uh, Star of David from the Holocaust. Yellow Star. Yeah. yeah. And what she's saying uh, about Omar is, that refugee girl wants to exterminate us Jews. You clearly were offended that she had appointed herself spokesman for world Jewry. In the service of pivoting from the nightmare that we're experiencing to blame it on the left, to blame it on a Muslim congresswoman who is receiving death threats as a result of this charade. In the wake of the last massacre incited by GOP philosophy and ideology, instead of saying, wow, we need to be on the White House lawn, the GOP needs to have an enlightenment and stop these horrible uh, anti-Semitic dog whistles. She went on ABC program and didn't blame Ilhan Omar for the massacre, but both sides of the issue. I do think when we're having conversations about anti-Semitism, we should be looking at the most extreme on both sides. And I would bring up Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and some of her comments that got so much attention. As if to say, well, okay, yes, synagogue shootings, but what... All about the Benjamins. Yeah. It's essentially what she said. Yeah. You know? There's one little footnote to this whole story with Meghan McCain, and that is when she saw your cartoon ridiculing her, she said... This is the most anti-Semitic thing I've ever seen. Everyone else was like, this is hilarious, a Christian woman is saying a Jewish cartoonist is anti-Semitic, but given the narrative we've been forced to live in, it was it was not out of the ordinary. And in fact, there were so many people on the Jewish right who have been condemning me for years for saying maybe Netanyahu is not the Messiah, who were embracing her, who were inviting her over for Shabbat dinner, basically saying, not even implicitly, you're the Jew, that guy who draws cartoons critical of Israel, no Jew. The question of Jewishness is a recurring theme in your work. I mean, you have a comic called Israel Man and Diaspora Boy. Yeah. (laughs) Israel Man looks like a superhero. And (laughs) Diaspora Boy is this kind of uh, gremlin. 
And uh, tell me about him and w- what his role is in your world. Well, Diaspora is also the title of my uh, book of comics, which sort of you know try to redefine Jewish authenticity after generations of being told that we in the diaspora are untermenschen, essentially. So Diaspora Boy and Israel Man and Diaspora Boy is a satire of Zionist ideology going back to the early years of Zionism in which the new Jews of the Levant would replace the Jewish type of diaspora. And if you look at the texts of early 20th century Zionists, they're saying literally he is hateful to all men of high standards. And I mean, you know, from their point of view, they were trying to convince Gentile authorities who were anti-Semitic to, you know, help create a homeland. But they imbibed so much, they started mirroring it and they started perpetuating it themselves. So your level of Jewishness hinged on your support of the Zionist cause. A friend of mine once described her mother-in-law who, if you asked her to pass the salt, first she'd have to decide whether it was good for Israel. (laughs) Yeah, and also, I mean, the belated punchline to Diaspora Boy is that Israel has today sided with anti-Semitic authoritarian regimes and actual movements that have historically sought the extermination of Jews. And so it's like the satire has become reality. Yeah, and not to mention common cause with the Christian right yeah. who embrace Israel for reasons of biblical prophecy. Yeah. They embrace the Christian right in ways that go far beyond their conceivable embrace of diaspora Jews. In the midst of all this political chaos, there is a lot of hand-wringing going on about the loss of civility. And, you know, mostly it's aimed at Trump and his, you know, childish uh, trolling of uh, political rivals and women or whoever he unleashes ad hominem attacks on. But it's also used to describe the society itself in all of its polarization. You don't seem to worry a whole lot about the civility problem. No, I think the whole civility issue is another manifestation of both sides in order to silence the left when we have uh, children in, in these internment camps, if you want to call them that very politely. There cannot be civility now. There's, there's no time for civility. There's no time for compromise. There's a time for rage and for acting out in the streets based on what they are doing. You know, I mean, just the idea that Stephen Miller can enter a restaurant, enter a movie theater, and, you know, if only, if only... In the 1930s, in Germany, there had been zero civility towards Nazis. It's not just your rage we're discussing. It's your rage about misplaced rage. Is there a piece that you did that you think uh, most distills the notion of us being upset about all the wrong things? One of them somewhat recently was involving Nazis about to shoot a Jew in the head And one Nazi comes up and says, did you hear a leftist made a remark that could possibly in certain contexts overlap with a vernacular of anti-Semitism? And then the Nazis who (laughs) who have their fingers on the trigger say, are you serious? And then the Jew himself says, this is a moral outrage while he's about to be shot. And the third one says, when will the world learn? Ellie, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Ellie Valley is a comic artist and author of Diaspora Boy, Comics on Crisis in America and Israel. Coming up, the sound, the fury, and the view. This is on the media. On the media is supported by Indeed.com. 
Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your short list of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash on the media. That's Indeed.com slash on the media. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. So Megan McCain goes after Congresswoman Ilhan Omar on The View, and all hell breaks loose. Now, yesterday, The View's Megan McCain had an emotional reaction to Congresswoman Omar's very incendiary, virulent anti-Semitic statements. Take a look. The freshman Democrat retweeted an Al Jazeera host who said this. Megan's late father literally sang, bomb, 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 Iran and insisted on referring to his Vietnamese captors as blank. He also, lest we forget, gave the world Sarah Palin, he wrote. So a little less faux outrage over a former refugee-turned-freshman representative, please. Which got us to wondering, a daytime chat show populated with B-plus list celebrities has become a center of gravity for political discourse? How did that happen? And the answer is... Gradually, over 22 years, with the help of a large and very devoted audience. We know this because producer Asa Chaturvedi and I met a lot of them this week on the sidewalk of Manhattan's West 66th Street, lined up to be in the studio audience of The View. I think we're, uh, I think we're fixing to meet some really excited people. Yeah. Oh, yes. Excited is right. We've been here before many times. Many yes. times. Yes. You stand out on the sidewalk. Yes, we do. In the, in snow. the rain. The rain, the cold, the snow. The what, the whole nine yards. We stand here. We love it. And wait. Massive fan of the view. I absolutely love the view. Watch it every single day. I love Whoopi Goldberg. Sister Act was the first movie I saw with a black person in it. And I absolutely love um, Joy Beha. She's very smart, witty, and funny. That's my lady. Wait one second here. Are you an employee of ABC? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> the show they'd come to see is sort of a mythical beast made up of different parts. It's a chat show. It's a reality show. It's a politics forum. And... It's sort of a WWE morality play with protagonists, antagonists, and a lot of conflict. Is there any of them who uh, you can't stand? Oh, yes. <laughs> what do you mean? You mean like Megan? Is that what you're, is that what you're getting at? Like I'm Megan McCain? I'm not specifying anybody, but you know, Megan is one of the women on the show. Uh, you're, you're one quick follow-up question. Why do you hate Megan so much? I do, yeah, that's so funny. No, absolutely, I do not hate Megan, and I think she adds some excitement to the show. They had different faves, different politics, and as a group, more Y chromosomes than you might expect. But they all grooved on the same thing. I love The View. I watch Why? it every day. Why? Um, because it's nice to hear a bunch of strong females voice their opinions. Which, from the day TV news icon Barbara Walters first conceived The View in 1996, was the plan all along. I've always wanted to do a show with women of different generations, backgrounds, and views. And in a perfect world, I'd get to join the group whenever I wanted. This is that show. We call it The View. Ramin Satuda is the author of Ladies Who Punch, the explosive inside story of The View. And he's New York bureau chief for Variety. He says that The View wasn't always so politics-centric, but 
not because Barbara Walters didn't want it to be. When she initially went in, she wanted to talk about very serious issues like Syria, the Middle East, things that are very highbrow and the New York Times would cover. And the daytime executives that were working with her had to convince her that the topics would have to be closer to things that you would read in the Daily Mail or the New York Post. They would need to be tabloid stories, fun stories, tawdry stories, because they didn't think the daytime audience was interested in smart news. And we've come to learn, in fact that that wasn't the case, that wasn't true, and The View has debated everything from George W. Bush's decision to invade Iraq to Donald Trump's tax returns. Now, in a male-dominated media world, (laughs) a male-dominated world, full stop, The View was long easy to dismiss as as trivial. Non-experts talking about complex issues for stay-at-home moms And the conflict was easily dismissed, and I use this word advisedly, as histrionics. But I love what Ruth Graham had to say in Slate. I'm going to quote her here. The View is a show you watch if you want to see a former Survivor contestant debate a former professional wrestler on the morality of waterboarding. On the other hand, she continues, it's the daytime show that debated waterboarding. In my book, I go back and I trace sort of how The View was always ahead of our culture. So in some ways, you could say the show predicted the fact that we would have our first reality TV president. It was the first show that took a reality TV show contestant with Elizabeth Hasselbeck and extended her 15 minutes of fame and gave her a job that had nothing to do with reality TV. She became the conservative co-host on the show. She became a celebrity in her own right. She was campaigning with Sarah Palin and became a huge symbol in the Republican Party. And for many people in the country that lived in red states, she was a heroine for them. Before American Idol made it cool to vote for your favorite singer, Barbara Walters was trying to audition different contestants to see who would be the best co-host after they fired Debbie Matinopoulos and they settled on Lisa Ling. So I take the stance in my book that this is actually a very influential show. It's a smart show, and it is a show that is important to us. It's not just pop culture. It's a show that mixed pop culture and politics before anyone else was doing that. And though the cast is often a little unnervingly chummy with the political guests, and although they sometimes give oxygen to stuff they shouldn't be fiddling with, like anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theories about 9-11, these non-experts sometimes ask some pretty trenchant questions. You're absolutely right. When John McCain was running for president in 2008, he went on The View, and he was grilled so Hard. There's another ad that says that Obama was interested in teaching sex education to kindergartners. Now, we, we know that those two ads are untrue. They're lies. And yet you, at the end of it, say, I approve these messages. Actually, Do you really approve them? Actually, they're not lies. And have, and have you seen some of the ads? The New York Times had a headline the next day about how tough they were on him. And you weren't seeing George Stephanopoulos doing that to John McCain. And I would even argue that Joe Biden's interview on The View a few days ago was actually a really hard interview, even though most of the co-hosts are liberals and support him. But I don't think anyone's ever said that I invaded their space in a way that was designed to do something uh, other than making them feel uncomfortable, but not Mm -hmm. anything having to do with harassment or anything else. Right. They have said that, but they've also said... We'd like an apology. Well, look, I, I, I'm... It I'm, wasn't an easy thing for him to be on that couch getting rapid-fire questions from five ladies who were very determined to make news. Uh, we discussed the evolution of the show and uh, the nature of the debate. It was always programmed for, you know, some degree of conflict, but so many watershed moments 
involving Rosie O'Donnell, Elizabeth Hasselbeck, you mentioned Joy Behar, uh, Megan McCain. Moment, please, I, you know, I, just, I don't want to talk about Trump. Once, uh, well, I do for the a moment. Second, so of, we're honoring a uh, great president. Excuse me a second, past. please. I, I want to talk about but the we're honoring, But I'm not interested in your one issue. I don't care what, what you're interested in. I'm talking. I don't care you what you're what? interested Damn in we'll either. We'll be right back. Boy. Conflict seems to have become the fuel that runs the engine. Or is that an oversimplification? No, I think that's exactly why people are so interested in the show. The reason that there's so much conflict has to do with the fact that each of the co-hosts were famous in their own right. When you go behind the scenes, it's a very King Lear-like story <laughs> in that Barbara Walters is retiring eventually from the show. And when she does, there's a real struggle for the control of the show between her daughters, which are Rosie O'Donnell and Whoopi Goldberg. Now, The, the View attracted a big audience fairly quickly, but it wasn't at least for a long time, taken very seriously necessarily in elite circles. But it did make a cultural footprint. This was from Saturday Night Live in 1998. Some may call it a train wreck. We call it The View. Now, Barbara, what were you doing when Nixon resigned? I was in a hot tub with Henry Kissinger and Juliet Krauss. Tina Fey told me in the book when she wrote these skits, there were male cast members on the show that thought this was a completely fictional show. They had no idea what this was, and I think Tina Fey really did help put The View on the map. On the subject of zeitgeist, uh, national conversation, you write that the Lewinsky affair had a huge impact on The View's evolution. How? When they were discussing what was happening in the White House, Bill Clinton's affair, the stain on the dress, nobody else was doing that on daytime television. First of all, I would want to know, what were you thinking? That he was going to leave his wife and drop the whole thing just to marry you? Okay, leave wife to marry you. They were very opinionated about it. They quickly cast, you know, the good people and the bad people in the sort of Clinton impeachment saga. The star in me wants to ask, because I have to separate the lawyer, what made you think it was okay to flash the president of the United States yeah. your underwear? Mm-hmm. I got to know that. The underwear. How much do you hate Linda Tripp? Mm. <laughs> it is really riveting and groundbreaking to see these women going on daytime television and really telling you what they think. Watersheds. You could argue that the spat between Rosie O'Donnell and Donald Trump in 2006 was a full-on microcosm of what we're living through today. And a preview of the 2016 election, 10 years before it happened, because Donald Trump's strategy against Rosie O'Donnell was exactly the same strategy he adopted against Hillary Clinton. Well, Rosie O'Donnell's disgusting. I mean, both inside and out. You take a look at her, she's a slob. She's basically a disaster. He attacked her. He attacked her looks, her intelligence, what she was saying. And this was all as a result of a roast on The View where Rosie did a comedic bit on the show. left the first wife, had an affair, left the second wife, had an affair, had kids both times, but he's the moral compass for 20-year-olds in America. He's going to sue me, but he'll be bankrupt by that time, so I won't have to worry. But uh... She made fun of Donald Trump's hair and his finances. The other interesting thing about that day was that back in 2006, Hillary Clinton decided on that day she was going to try to soft-launch her campaign for president of the United States. She was really one of the first politicians that saw the value of The View and the value of speaking to stay-at-home moms. And the Rosie Donald Trump fight completely overshadows her appearance on the show and foreshadows what happens in the 2016 election. (laughs) Earlier, I made reference to Meghan McCain's role on the show as the token conservative. Uh, Before McCain, there was Elizabeth Hasselbeck. Now... Their presence on the panel is framed as inviting a spectrum of political views, which I 
you know, I suppose is somewhat true. But isn't it really a contrivance to generate the conflict that we discussed? What they learned is that the show doesn't work without that Republican. When they fired Elizabeth Hassel back in 2013, they wanted to move away from politics. This was Obama's second term, and they wanted to go into sort of a direction of pop culture. And what they found is 30% of the audience left with Elizabeth. And it took many years for them to find a conservative like Megan that would actually argue with the other co-hosts and debate with the other co-hosts and be a Republican on the show. How in God's name did you do this for 10 years? <laughs> I'm serious. Being the lone conservative on this show is, I have, I always had respect for you when I first and came And the show on doesn't work unless you actually have a Republican who comes to the table every day and pushes back against what the other co-hosts have to say. This whole conversation is premised on a kind of shift of attitude about what the view is which parallels a shift in attitude towards women as candidates for public office. Are these phenomena related? I think so. What you could see in the DNA of the show, going back to the very first week, was this thesis that women should be empowered. And in fact, I think the show tried to forecast or predict a society in which women would run for the highest office in the land. Starting from week one, these co-hosts were talking about Hillary Clinton and were talking about what Hillary Clinton was doing in the White House. And they followed her career very closely through the 22 years of the show's history. And these were always women that lived their lives and lived their careers on their own terms. It's a very feminist show. If you're a fan of The View or just a political junkie, you've noticed that one candidate and officeholder after another shows up on that set. It has become a must-book destination for politicians. Are Whoopi Goldberg and Joy Behar more influential than Anderson Cooper or, or, I don't know, Sean Hannity? I think visiting The View is just as influential as visiting Iowa or New Hampshire. And the reason that the show has become so important for political candidates is that it reaches a very educated group of stay-at-home moms who care about the news and who are registered voters. And if you can change the minds of those women voters, it'll give you a boost in either a primary or general election. Ramin, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Ramin Satuda is the author of Ladies Who Punch, the explosive inside story of The View. You let me finish? Well, can you let me talk? Well, can you let me, finish? Well, can you let me can talk? You let me t- because it's actually your job to listen to me. We're not going to do this. This is the view. We are five best friends with nothing in common. Okay. Shake your love, maker. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Michael Lowinger, Leia Fetter, John Hanrahan, and Asta Chattavetti. We had more help from Zandra Ellen, and our show was edited this week by executive producer Katya Rogers. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.